Let's pray as we stand. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you most of all for your kindness to us in giving us the Lord Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you too for all the gifts that we enjoy in this life. And we pray that you would use these that have been given today and given through the week and that you might use them to extend your kingdom here in Nottingham, uh, across all nations and in the next generation. Lord, we pray that many might know the glorious truth of Emmanuel, God with us. And so, Lord, as we come to your word now, we ask by your spirit that you would be present with us. Turn our hearts, turn our lives towards Jesus Christ, that we might live for him, that we might rejoice in him, and that we might wait for him to come again. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, please do take a seat. Uh, please keep your Bibles open at Ruth chapter 3. You know, there's a, a common thread running through Christmas movies. I wonder if you've noticed it. I reckon Christmas movies are all about one thing. Waiting. Waiting for the big day, of course. Uh, but I think it goes further than that. Just think about it for a second. Uh, they've all got some element of anticipation, of expectation, some element of uh, waiting. Maybe it's waiting for nighttime so that your magical snowman can come to life. Maybe it's waiting for the burglars to come back so that your latest round of booby traps can spring into action. Maybe it's waiting for the cold heart of your long-lost dad to melt so that you can share all the joys of Christmas with him. Or maybe, just maybe, it's waiting for the maverick lone detective to finally get the upper hand on the evil genius who's taken Christmas hostage. You see, they're all, they're all about waiting. And of course, because Hollywood is Hollywood, uh, the other thing that, that apparently everyone's waiting for at Christmas is love. We're waiting to meet our perfect partner, waiting to meet the one. Well, we've seen some hints so far, haven't we, that the book of Ruth uh, is also a story of waiting. Naomi waiting to be redeemed, waiting to be rescued from the tragic fate that had befallen her. And as we come to, to chapter 3 today, well, you'd be forgiven for thinking that we find ourselves in yet another Hollywood classic, as we also wait for romance, for romance to blossom. We wait for the, the star-crossed couple, Ruth and, and Boaz, to finally work it out and to get together and bring joy and smiles and happily ever after. But friends, I hope that what we've seen so far of the book has convinced you that actually there's far more going on here. In fact, we'll see today that, that this story is not really about Ruth and Boaz at all. As the na narrative picks up pace and, and hurtles towards a conclusion, I hope you will see 
that there is something far bigger going on here than just that one relationship. You see, this is a story of waiting and a story of true love. But the story that we see here in microcosm reveals to us something of a much, much bigger story. It is not only Naomi and Ruth who are waiting for a redeemer. Remember, this story takes place in a dark, dark time in the history of God's people. All of ancient Israel has wandered away from Yahweh. Indeed, all of humanity has wandered away from him. All of humanity there is waiting for a redeemer. And so the focus of, of this story is not really whether Ruth and Boaz will get together, but rather about how a loving God will go to extraordinary lengths, weaving together all of history in order that he might be reunited with the people he loves, redeeming them, that they might rejoice in him. Friends, that's what this is all about. That's what we're waiting for. And so with all that in mind, uh, let's enjoy the story together. Let's read again from verse 1 of chapter 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Remember, Ruth and, and Naomi have been back in Bethlehem for some time now. They've been greatly blessed by Boaz, and they now found themselves with a secure source of food and, uh, for the foreseeable future. But Naomi thinks there is more to come. She's waited so long. And so now, well, now she thinks she might just move things on a little bit. But you know, her words here are quite revealing of what's really going on in her heart. Look again at verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. I must find a home. I must do this. Now, at one level, we could see this as, as Naomi stating her motherly love for Ruth. After all, at the time, parents were usually the ones who arranged marriages for their children. But take a look back at, at chapter 1, verse 9, and compare uh, what Naomi says there. There she says, May the Lord grant that each of you, Ruth and Orpah, will find rest in the home of another husband. Just look at that. When they were leaving Moab, Naomi knew that it was the Lord who would have to act to bring Ruth and Orpah into the rest of a new home. Now that they're back in Bethlehem, and things are going well, 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 suddenly Naomi sees it as her role to secure a future for Ruth. I think alarm bells probably should have been ringing here. Uh, this looks a lot like the decision to go to Moab all over again. Then Elimelech and, and Naomi could not trust the Lord to provide for his people, so they took matters into their own hands. And it didn't turn out well. Now, or well now, Naomi decides that God is taking all too long to bring about the kind of blessing that she has in mind. So it must be time for her to get involved. 
And if we're not convinced that Naomi's desire to nudge things on a bit was misplaced, well then, I think we only need to look at the next few verses and see the ill-conceived plan that she comes up with. Verse 2. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and cover his feet and lie down. Naomi is clearly pushing an agenda here. Ruth is to to get dressed up, to put on perfume and, and to make her way to Boaz. And what's more, she was to meet him at the threshing floor. At harvest time, uh, the grain would have been threshed by being trampled or beaten on a flat surface like this threshing floor in Greece. That would separate out the grain from the husk before the harvesters would then winnow the grain by throwing it up in the air. And the lighter husk would would be drifting off in the wind as the heavier grain settled on the floor, ready to be collected. Now to assist with this, the, the winnowing floor was often located outside the town on an exposed hillside so that there would be a constant and reliable breeze. More often than not, the the floor would be a communal space shared between farmers, possibly even between the whole town. All of this meant that the threshing floor gained a reputation for dubious behavior. Happy harvesters in the middle of, of gathering in the abundance of their fields would gather with others in the same high spirits, away from the prying eyes of the town, and would celebrate late into the night their day's work. And it's into that environment that Naomi sends Ruth, dressed to impress, and with instructions to lie compromisingly close to the man Naomi thinks may be the answer to her prayers. Well, this is a far cry from the concern Naomi initially showed for Ruth's protection and moral purity. Back in chapter 2, she was worried about what might happen to Ruth in a public field in the middle of the day. Now she was sending her to a well-known party spot in the dead of night. Naomi, it seems, was not good at waiting. Once again, she allowed her impatience to cloud her judgment. But when we are tempted to run ahead of God, what a wonderful grace it is so often that he provides a way out. A circumstance, perhaps a a conversation or an individual that that brings us to our senses. For Naomi and Ruth, he's already graciously ordained uh, that it is not just any man that becomes the object of Naomi's scheme. It is Boaz. And Boaz is a man of standing. Let's read on from verse 7. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, 
and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Well, surely this is it. For those of us who who know our romantic films well, well, this is very easy to read these verses and to think we know what's happening here. Surely this is Ruth and and Boaz's meet-cute. How could it be anything else? Our two lead characters together in an isolated place under a starry Mediterranean sky. We've been trained, haven't we? To expect a, a tentative but warm embrace followed by a tender kiss. Then the the camera pans up to the night sky and the scene cuts to the next morning. But we're able to fill in the gaps. We're in no doubt as to what's happened. That's how Hollywood would take things from here. But you know, if we read these verses as the beautiful coming together of, of two people destined to be together forever, well, then we've been sorely misled. Misled by our culture and, and its obsession with finding the one. If this scene were to have a Hollywood ending like that, well, it wouldn't be beautiful. It would be a tragedy. Boaz would be ruined. He and Ruth could could both have been put to death as adulterers. Naomi would be left destitute. Far worse than that, if, if Boaz and Ruth end this episode in adultery, they will be misrepresenting their God. The God who brought Ruth back from Moab, who saved her and welcomed her into his family. The God whom we've seen at work through Boaz's generosity and care. The God who delights to give good gifts to his children. That God is a God of covenant faithfulness. Who makes promises and who keeps them. Who loves with an everlasting love. That God is the one who gave us the gift of sex. And who makes it clear that 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 gift is only to be enjoyed within the context of a covenant relationship of marriage. If Ruth and Boaz are to continue to provide an accurate reflection of the God whom they love and serve, well then this scene at the threshing floor is fraught with peril. As we read these verses, we should feel nervous. Not because we really hope things are going to turn out well, but because we recognize that what happens next could result in the whole story ending in ruinous disaster. As the chill on Boaz's feet startled him into consciousness that night, he must have felt the atmosphere around him crackling with danger. How he dealt with this situation would reveal so much about his true character. Well, mercifully, Boaz had not been fed a diet of Hollywood junk food. He knew his Lord. And even in the drowsiness of midnight, his response was measured and godly. Verse 9. 
Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Well, this conversation is rich with language that points us towards God's laws and towards his faithful provision for his covenant people. Whatever Naomi's intentions for this late night encounter, in their words here, Ruth and Boaz make it clear that they will not allow any feelings they have for each other to override their commitment to Yahweh and to his good plans for his children. Ruth asks Boaz to spread the corner of his garment over her since he is a guardian redeemer. Now that makes very little sense to us unless we unpack a little of what those terms mean. First, the the act of of spreading one's cloak over another was a symbol of entering into a covenant relationship. The word for cloak is exactly the same word that Boaz had used for God's wings in chapter 2, verse 12. So where Ruth had, had taken refuge under God's wings, she now asked Boaz to extend the same kindness in taking her into a covenant relationship with him. Ruth asked Boaz to marry her. But notice her reason is is not because they fancy each other, though they probably do, nor because they get on so well that they're finishing each other's sentences, though they probably do, nor because they experience some sort of irresistible magnetic attraction. Now, all of those would be Hollywood reasons. Ruth's reasoning is covenant reasoning. She asked Boaz to marry her because he is a guardian redeemer within her family. You can read Leviticus 25 yourselves later to get a fuller picture of how this provision was written into God's law. But in short, whenever an ancient Israelite fell into destitution and sold their land, their their property, maybe even themselves, in order to pay off their debts, well, then there remained the option of a close relative paying to restore them and their belongings. As we read in Leviticus 25, one of their relatives may redeem them. An uncle or a cousin or any blood relative in their clan may redeem them. That's what a guardian redeemer was. A close relative who restored a member of the family who'd fallen on hard times. And as we saw in chapter 1, this could also mean marrying a dead relative's widow so that the family name was continued. It was an optional position. No one was required to carry out the role. But it was there, as so much in God's law, to allow ancient Israel to present a picture of how the Lord deals with his people. A visual aid that would help them understand and help the nations around them better understand who the God of Israel was. Ruth's request to Boaz that night was rooted in that law. 
She asks him to marry her so that Elimelech's family might be restored and so that the God of Israel might continue to be known as a God who provides for his people, a God who cares for the vulnerable. In the days when the judges ruled, the people of ancient Israel had so clearly fallen so far from God's good and gracious plans for them. But here was a Moabite widow who knew better the character of Yahweh, who knew what it was to wait patiently for his kindness, to wait for a redeemer. And Boaz's reply indicates that he too is motivated by a desire to see God's name glorified. He refers to to Ruth's earlier kindness to Naomi, the the kindness that had convinced Boaz that Ruth really had left behind the idols of Moab and come under the covenant wings of the only true and living God. This request now is from the same mold. Boaz can see that, that Ruth's primary concern is that the land that Elimelech's clan owns, the name afforded to him by the Lord, should continue so that God will be seen. As faithful. You see, it seems that contrary to Naomi's fears about Ruth moving back to Bethlehem, she was not without options when it came to finding a new husband. Boaz says she could have married rich or poor, for money or for love. But the fact that she asked him shows that she cared less for her finances or for her feelings than she did for her fidelity to the Lord and his covenant. That was what made Ruth a woman of noble character. Boaz knew it. The whole town knew it. A woman of character and a man of standing. Their actions that night on the threshing floor, well, well, they may never have made it into a Hollywood movie but they do show us how the Lord was working to reveal something of himself in these two and in their relationship with one another. But before we get carried away, before we think that perhaps everything's now sorted, well, there is a problem. There is one more hurdle that must be overcome. And even here in dealing with this, we shall see Boaz's commitment to sticking to God's timing, to waiting well. Let's read on from verse 12. Boaz said, Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of your family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. Well, all is not as it seems. Apparently, Naomi was not aware of this other kinsman, but but Boaz knew that he was not the first in line to redeem Elimelech's inheritance. There was another who must first be given refusal. 
This perhaps explains why, why Boaz had not stepped forward earlier to press his role as a guardian redeemer. But what really stands out in these verses is the contrast between Boaz here and Naomi earlier in the chapter. You see, we know from the end of chapter 2 that that Naomi has been aware that Boaz was a potential redeemer. And we began this chapter by seeing her attempt to manipulate circumstances, to to move events on. For Naomi, opportunity and, and potential seem to lead only to impatience. She wants things to happen in her time. She does not wait well. Boaz, however, well, well, he meets the same hypothetical future with an air of calm and steadiness. He's fully aware of the, the potential implications of taking on the role of guardian redeemer, and there's little doubt that he would gladly take Ruth as his wife. But he knows that he must trust God to bring these things to pass in his timing. Boaz is a study in waiting well. He's not a fatalist who who sits back and does nothing. He doesn't take a whatever will be, will be kind of attitude. But neither does he push his own agenda. His aim in life, his guiding principle, is that God's name should be glorified. That his character should be fully communicated, faithfully communicated through all that Boaz does and all that he he does in his life and how he goes about it. At times, Boaz knows that will require action. At times, it calls for patience. Naomi and, and Boaz may have had the same ultimate goal in mind, but Boaz would not allow himself to run ahead of God. Instead, as he awaits the final outcome, he will keep reflecting his gracious giving God through his own gracious giving to Ruth. Verse 14. So Ruth lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. And she did so. He poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. Boaz cannot allow Ruth to return to town in the pitch black of night. He's too concerned for her physical and moral well-being for that. He'd probably gone to sleep at the threshing floor that night in order to protect his harvest. But he ended the night protecting the noble character of one of God's precious daughters. And when daylight came, Ruth was again burdened with a huge portion of grain. Probably about twice as much as in chapter 2. The equivalent of nearly 1,400 Weetabix. Ruth has shown, too, that she can wait well. No doubt she longs for a redeemer. But she's more concerned with the glory of the Lord's name than with her own personal comfort. And yet in Boaz, while she waits, the Lord has graciously provided Ruth with both love and financial stability. 
All that she had given up was returned to her with interest. And so even Naomi cannot fail to be comforted by Boaz's patient and trusting response. As she sees her daughter-in-law once again staggering under the weight of the Lord's abundant provision. She is perhaps reminded that she should trust him. Wait, she says now, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. You see, at its root, the life of a follower of Yahweh is a life of waiting. You know, there may have been others like Boaz in ancient Israel, godly and kind, deeply distressed by the suffering and abuse that characterized the time when the judges ruled. They longed, like Naomi, for a redeemer, for one who would put things right. But they knew that only God himself could ultimately deal with the sadness and suffering, the pain and grief caused by human sin. And so they must wait. Do what they can to to reflect the kind and generous character of their God and wait. Wait for their Redeemer. Centuries later, not far from that threshing floor outside Bethlehem, their Redeemer and ours came. You are to give him the name Jesus, the angel had told Joseph, because he will save his people from their sins. Oh, how they must have rejoiced. Praise be to the Lord God of Israel, sang Zechariah when he learned of what was happening. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. And yet, still, they had to wait. How many times in those early years, I wonder, did Joseph and Mary wonder if they could hurry things along a little bit? Did they, like Naomi before them, find the waiting hard? Certainly there were many who wanted to make Jesus king before his time, who wanted him to save in in their way, according to their plan. But only when the time was right. Only when his hour had come did he redeem his people. Living in full accordance with the law of Yahweh. Dying in in full obedience to redeem by his blood a people precious to him. Friends, Naomi and Ruth had to wait for their redeemer. Our redeemer has come. And yet, and yet, still, we are a people who wait. We wait for his return. 
when his redemption shall be fully and and finally complete. When his people will be with him and, and will live with him for all eternity. You see, the book of Ruth is a wonderful love story. But it's not Ruth and Boaz's story. It is God's story. God's story of of drawing his beloved to himself. Of guiding and, and shaping all of our lives that we might come to know him. As the one under whose garment we find warmth and shelter and comfort. We may rejoice that that we can know his kindness and love and and provision right now, just as Ruth the Naomi did in those early days in Bethlehem. But friends, we must also recognize that we are called to be a people who wait. Who wait patiently for his return. Our Redeemer has come. Our Redeemer will come again. Friends, this Christmas, let me ask you, will you wait well? Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a generous God. A God who delights to give good gifts to his children. A God who delighted to send a redeemer. That we might be lifted from the pit and restored to life. And so Lord, we pray, help us when we struggle to wait well. Help us, Lord, when we want to to hurry things along, when we want things to happen in our timing, in our way. Help us then to remember your faithfulness, your kindness. Help us to trust. Oh, Lord, teach us to wait, to wait well. And to trust that our Redeemer is coming. Amen.